We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order. This is Multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week, remember the Ever Given, the boat that got stuck in the Suez Canal. Well, thanks to the Houthis, traffic in the canal is down by almost as much as when it was plugged. It seems the Red Sea crisis is about to inject an inflation spike, much like the one the Ever Given gave us. Only this time, the memes are going to be much less jolly. North of Israel, the war on two fronts is coming on nicely, with the assassination of Hamas's deputy and Hezbollah commander on Lebanese soil. We analyzed the chances that Hezbollah could throw their kafirs into the ring. Finally, a new report shows that financialized US office space in the major metropoles is now regularly underwater. We're returning to the question of whether it's about to have its own 2008 moment. But first, ship shape. Over the holidays, the Houthi rebels started attacking container ships in the Red Sea. Shipping effectively seized up. The Americans responded by launching Operation Prosperity Guardian, which was a uh, task force with various other navies and so on to try and unclog the clogged sea. It was a bit of a debacle from the start. People signed up, they pulled out, they heavily advertised the fact that the Seychelles, a tiny country with a small coast guard, was part of it. It was all very bizarre. Two weeks ago, Operation Prosperity Guardian effectively collapsed when another ship was hit. And basically, the too long didn't read version of that is Operation Prosperity Guardian or anything like it that's designed to uh, protect commercial shipping from rocket and drone attacks is only good if it provides 100% protection. If it can provide 100% protection, then the insurance companies don't like it and commercial uh, shipping companies won't send their, won't risk their crews or their ships. So we are currently now at the point where we can definitively say that Operation Prosperity Guardian has failed. Most of the shipping companies aren't sending at least their container ships through the Red Sea. In fact, on the day of recording, the Chinese company Costco said that they weren't sending anyone through, and that's after speculation that the Houthis were willing to leave the Chinese ships alone. So clearly the situation's got very bad. How bad? Well, we didn't really have good data on it until this weekend when Jim Bianca, a guy who runs a private research fund firm, I should say, on Wall Street, released a whole bunch of data based on GPS positioning and um, satellite imagery data. Basically, you can get this, I think the IMF do it and some private providers do it. And this kind of showed the extent to which this was impacting at least shipping through the Red Sea and therefore global shipping. So just a couple of metrics that stand out. Total weekly shipping volumes through the Bab al-Mandab Strait, that's the small choke point there into the Red Sea where the Houthis are targeting. Total shipping fell by about 55%. So that's actually a larger decline, percentage decline, than what we saw when the ever-given the ship blocked the Suez Canal in 2021, which famously was the kind of denouement of the collapsing supply chains that we saw during the lockdowns. It looks pretty much as bad as the blockage in terms of overall transport. In terms of 
cargo ships, it's a little bit worse, I'd say, than the original blockage in terms of the data. Interestingly, oil tankers, there was a lot of speculation that oil tankers wouldn't be affected because we haven't seen an oil tanker hit yet. But oil tanker traffic has fallen by about a third. So the people who are saying that the oil markets wouldn't be impacted were wrong, effectively. So it's a bit of a disaster. Now, how do you really interpret this? Well, the first thing to say is that this isn't like a ship getting stuck in the Suez Canal. If you look at the data, when the ship gets stuck in the Suez Canal, you see a very sharp decline, about 55%, as we said, about 50%, something like that, decline in trade volumes, or sorry, transit through the area. Then it just jumps back up, right? It just goes back to normal because they just un they unstick the ship. But unless something drastically changes, I see no reason why we don't now remain at these low levels of transit. And that's the fear. If if that happens, then this is substantially worse than what we saw in 2021. This will drag on and we'll basically see as if there's a blockage in the Suez Canal until this situation with the Houthis is sorted out. And there doesn't look like there's any means to sort it out currently on the horizon. Yeah, I mean, you know, you mentioned a blockage of the Suez, but from the data that I saw, the decline in transit through the Suez Canal, and obviously ships have to go through the Red Sea to enter or to exit the Suez Canal from the Indian Ocean or to the Indian Ocean. And the data I saw was that the present level of um, the present level of traffic through the Suez Canal is only a tiny bit more than when the Ever Given famously ran aground in the Suez Canal and entirely blocked the whole thing. So you had a situation where the Suez Canal was literally stuck for days, and the traffic through the Suez Canal now is only very marginally higher than that. It's really declined to a. Uh, a startling degree. But I think the question is, Philip, and the question that we've all got to ask is, this is leading to shipping having, instead of going through the Indian Ocean and through the Red Sea and through the Suez Canal and into the Mediterranean, it's causing shipping to have to go all the way around the Horn of Africa and refuel in places like Durban in South Africa and then all the way up the Atlantic to uh, Europe that way. That obviously is leading to a huge spike in the cost of shipping goods from Asia, from India and, and, and East Asia to Europe. I guess the big question here, Philip, is what effect is this going to have on inflation with, when Britain at least, and I think in the rest of Europe and the U.S., we are just now starting to get a grip on consumer price inflation, on the consumer price index, i.e. how much extra we're paying for our stuff compared with last year. That's just starting to come down to manageable levels. Are we now going to see a second spike in that? And in turn, is that going to push central banks to increase interest rates again to, to reclamp down on inflation? and thus hammer the economy. I mean, what's going to happen? What is the result of this going to be? Because it seems to me, at least, that there is no sight and end, no end in sight for Houthi efforts to shut down the Red Sea and thus the Suez Canal. I can't see why there won't be inflation. I mean, if the data is showing 
similar blockages that we saw during the, the lockdowns and the supply chain disruptions we saw surrounding that, then why shouldn't it be as bad? And, and in fact, why shouldn't it be worse? Because as I said earlier, unblocking the ship was a clear kind of binary event. Either the ship is blocking or it's not blocking. And this is a clear binary event too. Either the ships are going through or they're not, but there's no clear way to clear them up. Just to give some sense, by the way, before we go into the potential effects and the reactions of markets and central banks, some people are still holding out hope that the cavalry are going to come in and clear out the Red Sea soon. But just to give some sense, in 2015, the Saudis uh, led a coalition of nine countries in an operation called Operation Decisive Storm, which was designed to um, route the Houthis out in Yemen. They uh, utilized around 180 planes, many of which were American-made and quite modern, and over 180,000 troops. And they took some quite serious casualties with these troops. So the troops weren't just hanging around waiting for the planes to do things. For context, the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower, which is currently in the region, has 90 aircraft, and that's helicopters and fixed-wing aircraft. So you're probably looking at about 60 planes there, maybe 67 or something like that. So I think people are disengaged in fantasy when they think that just some overwhelming use of aircraft carriers or something similar can solve this problem. And I think they're going to be very disappointed that the cavalry don't end up uh, showing up on this one. In terms of what happens, in terms of markets and central bank reaction, the market reaction has been absolutely bizarre. There has been no market reaction. Now, we could go on about the oil price market, as we've done in the past. I've just said that the shipping, that oil tankers going through this region have fallen by 33%. So that's a third and about, I think it's 12% or something of the world's oil goes through there. So, and it's, by the way, it's increased massively. The Red Sea has become enormously more important since the Ukraine war because of diversions of Russian oil and so on. But the market's not paying any attention. When I looked at the Financial Times, so this data dump came out over the weekend. And I looked at the Financial Times this morning, expecting them to be reporting on it. Well, they're not. The press just aren't reporting on this, the financial press. I don't know why that is. I think maybe it might have something to do with the fact it's an election year. A lot of these kind of liberal financial publications don't want to see Joe Biden lose the election. They're terrified of Donald Trump losing the election or winning the election, I should say. I think that might be why. So the market reaction so far has been, has been weird. It's been completely quiet. No one's talking about it. Everyone's pretending it's not happening, even though big research groups like Jim Bianca's firm and so on are talking about it on Twitter. It's not making it through to the mainstream press. It's a very strange situation. But can central banks ignore it? I don't think so. I don't think so for uh, two reasons, and they're related. First of all, central banks got it wrong last time. Last time, they said that the inflation was going to be transitory. People probably remember this team transitory, it was called at the time, and that it would pass. Well, they were wrong. And the causes of the initial burst of the last round of inflation were the lockdown-led supply shortages, of which the ever-given getting clogged in the Suez Canal was part of that entire story. I can't see how the central banks could ignore this again. I mean, it really is only two years ago when we got this uh, shock of supply chain inflation, well, maybe three years ago, two and a half or so, how can they forget that quickly? They can't. And so in those central banks, they're all going to be talking about it, even if they don't make public statements, perhaps for the same reason that the financial press want to look the other way. 
So related to that is the second point, that if the inflation starts to tick up, or we should probably say at this stage when the inflation starts to tick up, the central banks are going to have to react. Because not only did they get it wrong last time with their team transitory stuff, but they reacted too late. And this massively undermined their credibility in the eyes of just about everybody. The moment that they see the inflation start to tick up slightly, and the moment that they can trace the causality back to supply chain shortages of the sort that they ignored last time around, they're going to have to react. Now, the big question is, what happens if they have to whack up rates again? Very briefly, although maybe we can talk about it more, I don't think the economy can take it. I think the economy has taken all it can in terms of interest rate increases. And another round of pain, not to mention another cost of living crisis, which is what this is going to drive unless something drastically changes in the next few weeks. I don't know if the economies are going to be able to take it. Yeah, and it seems very much that this isn't going to blow over in the next two weeks. There seems to be no present effort by the US, I mean, serious effort, which would inevitably have to be led by the United States to shut down this problem. I'm not sure, altogether sure they can shut it down because the sort of assets that the uh, Houthis are using to attack these ships going through the Red Sea, anybody trying to run the Houthi blockade is being attacked, and it's not being attacked by missiles fired from fixed installations. It's not being attacked by patrol boats coming from uh, specific ports. It's being attacked by very inexpensive, cheap drones and, and kind of men riding on skiffs, right? I mean, it's uh, these aren't the things that you can hurl a few cruise missiles and send the carrier air wing on two or three sorties towards to destroy and fix. You, you can destroy a few things, but how difficult is it to get a, a, a small boat out, a small motorboat out to sea? How difficult is it to fire a kind of a, a lawnmower with wings towards a ship, right? I mean, uh, I mean, I don't mean to denigrate the kind of stuff that the Houthis have because they're clearly effective enough, but at the same time, they're not so easy to destroy. Meantime, the Houthis themselves have made it quite clear that the pain is going to continue until Israel stops, and I assume that is not going to happen either. So I can only imagine that this sort of thing is going to carry on, and eventually markets won't be able to ignore this. And certainly, certainly the prices in supermarkets and our petrol stations, gas stations, as the Americans call them, are going to ultimately go up as a result of that. And then it's up to the central bank in terms of what it does. Franz Ferdinand Martyr's Brigade. Yeah, I think most people have been kind of watching out of the corner of their eye that the situation between Lebanon and Israel has been quite back and forth over the past few weeks. Um, you'll probably see kind of a rocket launched here or an airstrike there in Beirut and so on. And it, it can often be hard to try and figure out what's going on there. Is this the usual Middle Eastern tit for tat? Is this a normal, well, quote unquote normal, back and forth between two powers that may not be at war, but Hezbollah are supporting Hamas in the Gaza Strip? Are the Israelis just pushing them back a little bit. Well, I think my reading of it is now is that it might be coming to a bit of a head. The Americans released what the Telegraph has called a confidential US intelligence report. Now, it's so confidential that it's published in the Washington Post and the Telegraph. I think we all know this game. 
of leaks at this stage. But it's a defense intelligence agency report. The DIA is obviously the kind of military version of the CIA in a sense. They do um, defense intelligence and so on in the in Washington. The report basically says that Israel is, quote, unlikely to win against Hezbollah on a second front, end quote. Now, that's a pretty big statement. If people have followed the ins and outs of the Ukraine war, they probably now know that when confidential but leaked intelligence reports say that a country can't win, it sometimes means they can't win, and it probably does mean they can't win, but it also kind of means we would prefer if you stopped fighting, or we would prefer if we look for alternatives to fighting. So I think that's pretty much how you could read that report. The very act of leaking a report that says that a close ally won't win if they start a war is as clear a signal as any that they don't want them to start this war. The issue is that the day after that, which is the day of recording, the Israelis struck a Hezbollah commander and killed him in Lebanon. That is the key point of escalation here. It's not so much a random rocket thrown over here or some artillery shelling over there. That is the kind of tit-for-tat stuff that, that probably won't go anywhere. It's this targeting of the leadership, either the leadership of Hamas, who are in the region, or the leadership of Hezbollah, or whatever. And so I think you have to read that as the Israelis read the report that the Americans put out, which is clearly discouraging them from escalating the situation with Hezbollah, and they ignored it. And so, look, we don't want to try and predict the future. War is very complicated. It's very hard to predict, etc. But I don't think it will be too controversial at this point to say that the escalation is actually getting a bit out of hand right now. The US has clearly tried to put the brakes on it with this report and with other, I'm sure, but behind the scenes negotiations and so on. And it seems like they can put the genie back in the bottle. So I think there's actually becoming an increasing risk now that this becomes a war, a regional war, or at the very least a war between Israel and Lebanon or Hezbollah, whatever way you want to look at that. Now, perhaps we can go into what that would mean, but it would be a very different type of war with very different types of munitions and so on being used than what we're currently seeing in the Gaza Strip. Yeah, I mean, a war with Hezbollah would be much more like a full-on war. Hezbollah is not a small group of insurgents. Hezbollah is organized in a way that is organized, armed, trained, and uh, staffed, far more like a regular army, and uh, by all accounts, a reasonably effective regular army at that than it is the kind of like the Hamas terrorists slash insurgents. So clearly any effort by Israel to take on Hezbollah would be far more like the sort of war that we have seen in the Middle East in the past, where the Israelis have taken on various Arab forces. And indeed, the last time Hezbollah itself, when Israel struggled mightily against Hezbollah, which it turned out was an extremely effective fighting force. And of course, since then, Hezbollah's had significant experience fighting in the Syrian civil war, so one would expect them to be battle-hardened, experienced, and effective indeed. So I don't think it's far beyond the realms of possibility to say that Israel would struggle, certainly. 
whether Hezbollah has been degraded somewhat by the fact that Israel has been in t- attacking them fairly consistently since the horrors of October the 7th is another matter. Perhaps Hezbollah has degraded somewhat and Israel's got its kind of battle boots on and is more ready to go, but that's very speculative. I think what I would say here is that we, for now, what, three months have, say- have been saying that this small conflict, horrific as it is, it's still a small conflict between Israel and Hamas, has the potential to spiral out of control. And that's because of the links between various individual points of the chain. For example, Iran might decide that Hezbollah is worth too much as a strategic asset to allow to be defeated or severely degraded by the Israeli defense forces. The United States might decide that any Iranian help that tips the balance against the Israelis would be beyond the pale and the US might get involved. Russia, in turn, might believe that Iran is too important as a strategic asset to it. This could spiral all the way up to global war. This is exactly, exactly how the First World War started. There was an assassination of an Austrian royal in Serbia. The Serbians felt that they couldn't acquiesce to the Austrians. The Russians felt that they had to defend the Serbians against the Austrians. The Germans felt they had to come to the aid of the Austrians against the Russians. The French felt they had to come to the aid of the Russians against the Germans. And boom, you have World War I. So it's exactly this sort of chain. I, I don't want to be melodramatic about this, but it's exactly this sort of chain that can really spiral out of control because of the linkages of alliances and reliances in the region and beyond. I personally think that everybody is underpricing by a significant degree the chances that this expands into a regional war. I would say that I don't think it will happen. Fingers crossed it won't. I think all of the signs at the moment, certainly from the United States and also from Iran and one or two other actors in the region, including Syria, interestingly enough, shows that they're all showing a tremendous amount of restraint and really ignoring some quite significant provocations. I mean, we've spoken about the Americans and the Red Sea. We've also spoken in previous podcasts about American bases being attacked. The U.S. is brushing it under the carpet, which I think shows a degree of restraint. Equally, the Iranians and the Syrians have had to put up with a few outrages as well. Israel has attacked Syrian targets on several occasions. Equally, there's recently been an attack on Iran as well. And both of those nations are showing a tremendous amount of restraint. Russia hasn't put its weight beyond behind either side. It's made some statements which are basically repetitions of long-held Russian positions, but they're not stoking the pot to any great degree. So I think all sides are, are, are putting in a, showing a great deal of restraint, and that perhaps you know, is in favor of this not developing into a regional war when they can handle everything. But all it takes is one event, one small event that goes to a point where somebody feels they can't tolerate this any longer. Maybe Israel makes another attack in Lebanon. 
maybe there's a, a, an attack on an American base that leads to a large number of deaths of U.S. personnel. Whatever that is, there might be a point where, despite the fact that none of the individual actors want a regional war, and despite the fact that all of these regional actors are actually taking quite a few provocations in the face and turning the other cheek in a real effort to avoid a regional war, they just can't. And then you're in a really dangerous situation where, as I say, steps of escalation can jump up linkages of alliances and you can get a very serious uh, conflagration indeed. Uh, Well, I think the place to watch for that lack of capacity to tolerate stuff is um, taking out command position officers in militaries. Without the command structure, the military doesn't exist, right? If you look in Ukraine, the there hasn't actually been much of that because people understand what it means to target the the brain of the army. That's a that on my reading anyway is a pretty provocative thing to do. I, I think you're absolutely right. No one wants this war, or very few people want this war. But I don't think that means that we won't get it. I don't think it's more probable that we'll get a war, but I'm not sure that it's less. We, we might be a 50-50 here, I'm afraid, as far as I can tell. I think two things to... One thing that's worth pointing out in this DIA report, just because it's really interesting, and then maybe move on to the broader ramifications of what would happen if such a war broke out from an economic point of view. In the DIA report, I was very interested to note that the headline concern that the DIA put out was actually about the um, Israeli Air Force. Now, if you know anything about Hezbollah, you'll know that really Hezbollah, in terms of their threat to Israel, their threat, as far as I could tell, was mainly their enormous uh, missile uh, supply. That basically they had quite advanced cruise missiles and stuff from from um, Iran, and that in if things heated up, they could launch these things at Israel. It seems unlikely that Israeli air defense could take down all of it. So I would have thought that that the thing that the DIA would highlight would be the enormous stockpiles of missiles and potentially drones as well. But I think it's many missiles with Hezbollah. But that's not actually what the DIA highlighted. They highlighted. A quote from the report here, IDF pilots would face far more dangerous missions going up against Hezbollah's powerful air defenses. Now, I wasn't really aware that Hezbollah had powerful air defenses. I kind of looked into this for the show. It's very, very sketchy about what Hezbollah have and don't have in terms of air defenses. But I would note two things. First of all, Syria now has extensive Russian air defenses, S-300 systems. They were delivered... uh, three or four years ago, I think. They've proved very effective in the Ukraine war on both sides. Both sides have been using S-300 systems. So they're serious. They're serious business, even those slightly older Russian air defense systems. Now, Syria has them. There's no doubt about that. But there are, I wouldn't say rumors, but there are analyses out there by American think tanks and so on that suggest that Iran is either in the process of or has already delivered their new air defense system, which is called the Kordad 15, to Hezbollah. Now, I can't find anything definitively saying they have given these air defense systems to Hezbollah. The air defense systems themselves, I mean, you never know from just the look of them, but my sense would be that they are actually quite advanced. 
I think that they're probably just copying other people's systems. Maybe the blueprints were handed over to them and so on. And we've seen that Iran's missiles seem to work pretty well. So that would be an enormous concern. Again, I'm just highlighting it because it was in the report and it wasn't what I expected it to be. I expected to read about the large missile stockpile that would threaten Tel Aviv or Jerusalem or something like that. But no, they led with this air defense thing. Now, why is that so important? Because if you've watched the Israelis engage in any form of warfare, including in the Gaza Strip right now, they really rely on air power. And they rely basically on air superiority. No uh, IDF bombers get shot down over Gaza. I mean, it just, it doesn't happen. Maybe they could hit a helicopter or something with an RPG, but I don't think we've seen that. But I suppose it's in theory possible. If they are flying over Lebanon to do these um, to do these bombing raids, as they already are, it would seem, and there's actually air defense system there, that kind of introduces a bit of a wild card. The last thing, obviously, is the economic effects of a war, a regional war, if it was to break out. Well, the first thing I wouldn't be as I wouldn't be as worried about a World War One scenario, for the simple reason that that I think it will be very difficult for the U.S. to actually get involved in this war. I think this goes back to something that uh, Malcolm Cheyune said on the podcast last week. There's no real staging point for such a war. I mean, I guess America could put troops in Israel and fight Hezbollah and Lebanon. I mean, that seems strange. Fighting Iran, I'm not really sure how you can do it. Maybe from aircraft carriers, but that's a very limited capacity. The other thing is that I really, I don't know if you could really deploy the U.S., army to the Middle East. I, just in terms of morale, you'd definitely be going into the conflict exhausted and cynical. It would be a it would be a disaster, I think. But what I can see happening is a regional war that puts up all the kind of tensions and defenses in the region. And the issue with that would be that we've obviously already talked about the Red Sea issue on the program and We've stated that even blocking off the Red Sea through this choke point near near Yemen has enormous effects on the world economy, which we're likely to see in the coming weeks. The effect of a wider war will be, I won't say unimaginable, it's not quite unimaginable, will be very bad. I mean, just think of if Iran blocked off the Strait of Hormuz, which is a key point for shipping oil in and out of the region. I think it accounts for almost 25% of global oil shipments go through the Strait of Hormuz. So the impact would be enormous. I mean, definitely my sense is if this turned into a regional war, the shock that it would produce on Western economies would be substantially larger than the shock produced by the Ukraine war and the sanctions. I think that would be actually fair to say. And it would it would be more uniform as well. The, the shock... Um, created by the Ukraine war and the sanctions, mainly fell on Europe with higher gas prices. Now, of course, oil prices did go up and Americans suffered that, but it mainly impacted gas prices. That would not be the case this time. Yes, Europe would be slightly worse hit. There's no doubt about that. But oil is fungible, container ships are fungible and so on, and they'll go where the price is the highest. So the pain on that will be spread around in a way that the pain wasn't spread around and was contained to Europe due to the Ukraine war. And all of that's a short way to say that if this turns into a regional war, 
There is absolutely no hope that Joe Biden will win the presidency. In fact, I don't think there's any hope that any Democrat will win the presidency. And I think everyone in D.C. knows that. So that's worth kind of factoring in while watching these while watching this. I don't think that'll stop a war because clearly the Americans are trying to dig their heels in here and it's not working as well as they'd like. But yes, if this accelerates into a regional war, our already battered and bruised economies are going to get a sledgehammer to the face. It's going to be an absolute disaster. We work nation. So listeners might remember Last year, we did a couple of episodes that covered the situation in the U.S. real estate market, and especially with regard to commercial property in the U.S. We did we discussed that in general, and we also looked at San Francisco as, as a specific case study. And we also looked at events surrounding Silicon Valley Bank and the bailout of retail investors within Silicon Valley Bank. I recently read an article in the Daily Telegraph in London by one of our favorite columnists, Philip Pilkington, Ambrose Evans Pritchard, which was really something of an update on both those stories, both the smaller regional US banks and the commercial real estate property. And it seems that those two negative issues are coming together in a kind of a an apocalyptic nexus, as is Mr. Evans Pritchard's wont to cover. Basically, he reports on a new report by four America of America's leading financial experts, which says that there is a serious underlying crisis in the U.S. banking system. And basically, there's $5 trillion. You heard that right. $5 trillion of commercial property borrowing coming due in various tranches and 1.5 trillion dollars coming due this year alone now he argues that the experts claim that this is being hidden by federal reserve lending facilities that were set up in the wake of the collapse of silicon valley bank and one or two other banks but according to the one of the report's authors this is not a liquidity problem it's not something that the fed can solve by providing short-term liquidity for banks to kind of bathe them in cash while they get over the liquidity hump. No, according to the report, this is a solvency problem, and half of all U.S. banks are now running short of deposits with assets that are worth less than their liabilities, i.e. they're effectively insolvent. And we're talking about $9 trillion worth of banking assets in all here. I mean, these numbers are just mind-blowing, and they're easily big enough to trigger a broader financial uh, crisis. And at the root of the problem is the commercial property market. Basically, as we said last year, as we said last year was happening, people aren't going back to the office after COVID. A lot of people have found that they prefer to work from home, or they're engaging in hybrid working where they spend some days in the offices and some days at home. And it's meaning that in a lot of industries... This is not being tracked, apparently, according to Evans Pritchard. It's not being tracked by the main commercial property indexes, which kind of follow commercial property prices, because these indexes in general cover the prime commercial real estate locations. They don't cover the whole thing. And it's the kind of the B and C level sections that are be really being wiped out. In his article, Ambrose Evans Pritchard spoke to 
a property developer who'd actually recently defaulted on a $240 million loan for a 33-story office block in New York. And this man said that he personally expects 500 to 1,000 banks to disappear. We're already looking, apparently, at commercial property transactions, i.e. the buying and selling of commercial property at 50 pence, 50 cents on the dollar, i.e. commercial property is selling at a 50% discount. Clearly, this is all going to have to be marked down on banks' balance sheets, and it's probably not being at the moment because they're holding on, hoping things will improve. But, you know, 70% of commercial property is concentrated at smaller local banks in the U.S. Uh, There are 2,000 banks in America, 2,000 banks in America that are already facing negative capitalization. And guess what? As these 2,000 banks face negative capitalization, as 3,000 banks risk a solvency crisis, so 300 banks risk a solvency crisis, we have the situation in the Red Sea, which, as we spoke about earlier, could well lift up inflation. And the likely response of central banks to that it will be to lift interest rates, which will only make the balance sheet positions of these banks worse. It will only make the commercial property sector worse. So... While these banks might be saved by the Fed reducing interest rates as they're expected to do this year, uh, although the authors of this report say, no, they won't be, it's too little too late, there might not be any reductions of interest rates this year. I mean, we might see increases in interest rates this year if the Red Sea situation doesn't blow over soon. And when that happens, well, you know, the banking sector seems primed for some kind of crisis indeed. I suppose we might as well just come out and say it. Everything about the American economy is fake and political at the moment. Really to an extent that it never has been, at least not in my memory. Presidential election years are always very special time for the American economy. Everyone always talks about them in terms that they have to be analysed in and of themselves. That's because presidents in the US put a lot more effort into propping up the economy in an election year or boosting the economy than happens in other countries. I mean, in Britain, for example, I think the Tories recently gave people a couple of pennies off a pint of beer, um, you know, to try and try and soften them up for the election or whatever. That's a very classical European tactic. Or you might try and help out some of your constituency groups. If you're a socialist or social democratic party, you might try and help out your trade union friends, your friends in the trade union sector, or your friends in the public sector. In America, it's not really like that. They really do juice the economy usually in election year, or they engage in various various things. This is well known that you can even invest the presidential cycle in the stock market. There are ways of actually investing the presidential cycle, and it works quite well because earnings tend to go up in this period. And actually, price earnings tend to go up too because of central bank easing often. Now, that's all par for the course. That's American politics. The Americans take their politics very seriously. Right now, though, we are at levels of election (laughs) economic fakeness previously thought impossible, I would say. I wrote a piece, I think it was for the New York Post a few weeks ago, calling the Biden economy the weekend of Bernie's economy. Um, If anyone remembers the 1980s film where two insurance salesmen witness the death of their boss or kill him. I can't remember. I think they witness his death. And then they have to pretend that he's still alive because they want to claim some reward money or something. And so 
they have these silly scenes where they drag the corpse to a party propped up on their shoulders and make them dance and stuff like that. The American economy really feels like that, and it's felt like that for a while. Um, the first round of it was basically that it didn't fall into recession. So a lot of people expected a recession last year due to tightening credit conditions and so on. It was a very mainstream view. I thought there'd be a recession too. Most people did. And it didn't fall into recession. And, and the reason it turns out that it didn't fall into recession is because the Inflation Reduction Act, the massive spending bill that the Biden administration has put on the table, is keeping the economy propped up, like Weekend at Bernie's, basically. We could go into the IRA and the distribution of the spending and so on. But basically, that's why, if you look at polls, Americans say the economy is terrible. But if you look at GDP numbers, it's growing really fast. Well, it's because it's, I'm not saying it's not real growth, but it's sort of not real growth. It's growth confined to these funny sectors of basically party aligned people who can get access to these loans and tax credits to build, um, I won't say roads to nowhere, but potentially unviable green energy companies, I think would be a fair thing to say. That will be the majority of the spending. Now, that is what it is. That spending bill was passed a few years ago. Now, I'm sure that the politicos saw when it would come online and timed it nicely. That would be very classic American politicking. The issue now, though, I've felt in the past, I don't know, six, eight weeks, maybe four months, something like that, that the level of fakery around the financial stuff has just become, I mean, we alluded to it earlier, that that we have these blockages in the Red Sea, the potential for another serious inflation, and the financial press aren't even talking about it. This isn't just extend and pretend. This is everybody burying their heads in the sand. And everybody's burying their heads in the sand because they can't even imagine that Joe Biden would lose the election to Donald Trump. And so things just aren't being talked about. They're just not being talked about. So in this instance, what I think is pretty much happening is that, of course, this paper is probably correct. Of course, Evans Pritchard is probably correct. These banks are broke, but the regulators are looking the other way. They're just looking the other way and they're saying, we'll deal with it after the election. And all of this seems to be the case. When the Fed said that they were going to reduce rates, there was no reason in the data. I followed this really closely. The data had not changed. A few weeks prior to them saying that they were going to reduce rates, they were saying they were going to keep rates higher for longer. That was the rhetoric. And Jerome Powell constantly said, we are not reducing rates. Nothing changed in the data. I think the market's pricing in, as of today, five interest rates cuts between now and the election in November. If It all feels very political. But the problem is that you can't extend and pretend if bad things start happening. Yes, the Financial Times and other financial publications can pretend that what's happening in the Red Sea isn't happening and that another round of inflation isn't very likely inbound. But that won't alter reality. And as you alluded to, if and when that inflation hits, it doesn't matter. All this tomfoolery, all this fakery, all this sweeping inconvenient stories under the rug between now and November, it's all going to be exposed. You know, it could well be that an inflation shock like the Red Sea situation at the minute, which is in the process of going through the pipe, it, it might not have the kind of effect we think it could have, but certainly if it lasts, it will. And very much certainly, if I can say that, if there's a regional war, there'll be a big inflation shock. But I I want to say that, although that's the clearest way that a lot of these banks get in trouble, i.e. there are logistics problems related to the Middle East, 
that causes shipping rates to go up, that causes end user inflation to go up in places like the US and Europe. And that in turn causes central banks to raise interest rates, which dampens down on demand in the economy, reducing growth, but at the same time, reducing the value of things like bonds that banks hold on their balance sheets. That is the clearest way that this could lead to disaster. But I, I just want to make sure, make clear that it doesn't have to be like that. If listeners remember, we spoke about the situation in, in places like New York and San Francisco with regards to commercial property. And it's not improving. The Professor Van Nuenberg has recently republished a paper uh, in which he says that in New York alone, the the value destruction in commercial property could be greater than $650 billion. And he stresses that is a, a median scenario, not a worst-case scenario. So in the kind of the average scenario of his forecasts, demand destruction in New York City alone, not other cities like Boston and Washington and Philadelphia and Chicago and Los Angeles and San Francisco, just New York could be $650 billion, so almost two-thirds of a trillion dollars, okay? Ultimately, that's going to be felt by banks. And when you look at the numbers, if you look in places like Asia, office occupancy rates are back to about 100%. In the US, a lot of workers just haven't returned to the office. It's only 34%, so just a little over a third of American workers are turning up on Fridays to the office. So it's like Friday is now a work-from-home day, not just dress down Friday, it's work from home Friday. It's 28%, so even lower in Silicon Valley. It's 27%, even lower again in New York. Now, it might not seem a lot, people just not turning up on a Friday, but that's 20% less office space that you need, essentially, isn't it? It's difficult to see how offices recover. There'll have to be some repurposing. And ultimately, that's going to be have to that's going to have to be felt by banks. Meantime, a lot of real estate loans were taken out at 3%, 3.5% when you know the Fed had interest rates on the deck. Now, even if they can access the loan market, even if banks are willing to give them loans, which isn't always the case, they're at you know, 7 8% maybe. This is making it extremely difficult to roll things over. So even without an interest rate shock, even without an inflation and then interest rate shock, it's entirely possible that this could go pop sometime soon. And that wouldn't necessarily look like 2008. It wouldn't necessarily look like the global financial crisis where the entire global economy had a heart attack and almost died and had to be resuscitated by joint massive efforts by almost all central bank, major central banks around the world. No, I'm, you know, I'm not saying that's going to happen. But, you know, as one of the kind of the extreme outcomes of this, it might, uh, more likely you'll have, you know, something like we had in the late 90s, for example, which was pretty bad, or maybe the savings and loan crisis in the 1980s. I mean, these are pretty bad outcomes. And given the economic situation, given the limited room for further fiscal expansion, given the inflation situation at the moment and the limited room for central banks to really, you know, hammer down on interest rates and flood markets with printed liquidity, that could lead to a pretty bad outcome for economy. So I think this is very much worth watching. And as you say, again, it's not really something that's been covered in the broader press. You do get people like Uber Bears, like Ambrose Evans Pritchard, who cover it. But 
uh, apart from that, not greatly. I suppose we should probably end then by me asking you the question, given all we've talked about, what do you think the future holds for 2024? I mean, it looks like it's shaping up to be a year at least filled with risks, if not filled with disaster. Uh, yeah, I mean, 2024 looks like being as bad as 2023, but maybe a bit worse, right? I mean, there are all kinds of risks. Uh, we still have a war in the eastern approaches of Europe. We have a highly risky war in the Middle East. We have a range of pretty dodgy, shaky-looking economies. The U.S. less so. I mean, the U.S. is growing because of all the you know, the massive fiscal expenditure, huge budget deficits being run by the U.S., but still, there are there are signs of strain there, and little points where it could all go wrong. Economies like Germany already in recession. Britain is staggering on like a like a shambling zombie, and then you have loads of political risk as well. General election is likely in Britain, a presidential election in the U.S. Certainly, the U.S. presidential election is going to be really nasty, really nasty indeed, especially if. If Donald Trump runs, but you know, even if he doesn't, I think it's going to be a very nasty uh, election. So there's even political risk for the first time in in what three, four generations uh, in the Western world. So I don't know. I wish I could uh, be optimistic, but there's just too much risk out there to be optimistic. It seems to me that recession, war, political strife, and lack of social cohesion is going to be just like last year, but maybe a bit worse. Sounds like a very good case that listeners should become premium subscribers to the Multipolarity Podcast. We don't have any advertising on this website. We don't have, we don't talk about the joys of certain mattresses or sleep monitors or, or male grooming products or anything like that. All of our support comes from our listeners. We get great feedback by email, direct messages on Twitter, and it's fantastic. And, and, And some people... Uh, even pay for premium episodes. We put out one premium episode a month, which is a very serious deep dive into a specific product. They seem to be very valuable. We don't get anybody once they take out a subscription who doesn't. But it only costs five or a month, five dollars, five pounds, five euros. You can find us on Multipolarity, the podcast on Patreon. It seems to be something people value and it helps us make the things happen. It uh, keeps producer Gavin, at least, in his packets of Cheetos and ginger ale. So please, if somebody thinks that's valuable, if somebody thinks it's worth the, the price of a Starbucks coffee, then uh, give it a go.